Hey, welcome back to My Teeth Need Attention. It's been a while again, of course. Sorry. <laughs> I just get so bogged down in some work stuff and projects and then... I don't know. Anyway, um, today's uh, episode is super special to me. Um, it features an interview I did with Bruce Russell of the Dead Sea and a handful of dust who you're hearing in the background here. Uh, he also ran the uh, very important labels Expressway and Corpus Hermeticum. Uh, still super active after just a ton of years. Uh, we talk about a, a kind of some anniversaries that uh, the Dead Sea just passed recently. Talk about Bruce's growing up um, days in college or university. The various labels he ran, the bands. Uh, New Zealand in general so yeah I want to thank uh, Bruce for being on the podcast and giving me his time it was great great talking to him I've uh, met him in person uh, just once maybe once or twice I forget but yeah I hope you enjoy it so uh, what you're hearing in the background here is a handful of dust which is his project uh, with it, it's usually him and Alistair Galbraith. Uh, sometimes it's only him, but almost always it's a duo. And on this release, they're joined by Peter Stapleton on drums. Uh, this is from the uh, Corpus Hermeticum release Le Jazz Non, a compilation of 90s New Zealand noise. Uh, it just has it's a powerhouse comp. If you are not familiar, it includes Gate, Rain, Witsist. Uh, Thela, Sandoz Lab Technicians, Empirical, Omit, RST, Dormar, Layman Sari, Handful of Dust, and Surface of the Earth. So uh, if you're not familiar with New Zealand uh, free noise, this is a great place to jump in. can't imagine it's terribly hard to find on Discog. So we're going to play this. I'm going to play a smattering of uh, Bruce-related materials before the interview and after the interview. Um, I'll do a full uh, rundown of the tracks, you know, after each block. But I'm going to play this, and I'm going to play uh, up next, Power by the Dead Sea. That's the track that the name of this uh, podcast comes from, My Teeth Need Attention, is a lyric in Power. Power is one of my favorite songs, um, kind of all of all time. All right, so let's get to it. Thanks for sticking around. Again, this is uh, My Teeth Need Attention. You can go to myteethneedattention.com to find all the links to, uh, well, all the shows are up there, and uh, you can find links to the various podcast uh, clients that I kind of push to, and also the Instagram account that I run uh, where I post photos and things like that of the shows. All right, let's get back to it.
yeah, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. So, you know, the podcast is called My Teeth Need Attention, obviously lifted from uh, a Dead Sea song. Oh, uh, yeah. I I got a, an offer the other day to for have to me to buy a URL, and it was like um, teethrepair.com. I'm like, I don't, I don't need that URL, thanks, but no. It was only $435, U.S. dollars. But. The motherfucker's <laughs> going to use it. Yeah. So, um, so where, right now you live in Littleton? Yes. Which is, is that a suburb of, like, uh, Christchurch, or it's separate, Yeah, technically right? it, it is now. I mean, it, Littleton is the port of Christchurch, and it actually was, like, Littleton existed basically first. Oh, okay. um, so because it was the point of arrival um, and Christchurch, and the, the complicating factor is that Littleton is in the flooded caldera of yet another volcano. So, um, so basically the crater rim is a wall between us and the city. And in 1860, Two, they put a rail tunnel through, and then a hundred years later, they put a road tunnel through. And it was only when the road tunnel went through that Littleton really became part of Christchurch. And so that's just in my lifetime, basically, oh. that that's happened. So Littleton still thinks of itself as being a, a separate, you know, urban entity, but it's kind of not. <laughs> but it existed before that. It wasn't just from sprawl. It wasn't. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely not. No, Little, Littleton was eff effectively founded by white folks before Christchurch. Okay. Because where, they uh, needed... Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in Nelson, which is at the top end of the South Island. Okay. It's, uh, it's another delightful historical town. Um, I absolutely loathe it. Um, it's a very insular, self-satisfied kind of bourgeois little place. And um, yeah, I've, I've, got a, I've got a whole lot of resentment towards Nelson. It's the kind of place in New Zealand people go, oh, how lovely, you know, Nelson, it's so pretty and the weather is so good. But actually it's, it's, a, it's a very, it's, it's a ghastly little self-loving shithole. <laughs> where i'm from that's great <laughs> a lot of people that i don't really like the town i'm from either but there you go yeah it's kind of you know that's part of growing up um so uh, what what made you leave there uh university or well yeah i mean my excuse was was university um what made me leave was i was desperate to get out <laughs> oh yeah right yeah um and yeah i there are there were really two universities in the South Island at that point, and almost everybody I was at school with was going to the University of Canterbury, which is here in Christchurch. So I um, was determined not to go there because I wanted to get away from everybody I knew. Um, and so I went to the University of Otago, which is in Dunedin. Um, my sister had uh, had been a student there a couple of years previously, and I'd, I'd been there a couple of times. And and I, the the thing is that it subsequently became like a really kind of cool 
place to go to university and it's turned into one of those classic sort of party towns where where hordes of young people will get drunk in the street and one of their favourite activities is to like, um, they'll drag a a cheap like sofa out of somebody's house and, and set fire to it. And this is like, you know, this is Friday night fun and the cops turn up and they're, yeah. they're so fucked off and they have to put out the fire and then they have to put up with a whole bunch of drunk 18 year olds, you know, harassing them. Yeah. Um, but, but when I went there, it wasn't really like that. It was a, it was a quiet little university town that was about to experience this massive explosion of, um, of garage bands Um that kind of fueled the whole flying nun thing in the early eighties. And I just purely by chance, I was there when it happened. Yeah. So you, yeah, you were going there. not really like, were you exposed to um, like uh, underground art or music when you were back at home or was that something? Not really. That- no, no. I, um, and I was, I, I thought that rock music was something that I could be interested in, but I hadn't had that much exposure to it because the media was very um, middle of the road, and I didn't have any, I didn't have any friends or relations who were knowledgeable about these things. So it wasn't until I actually got to Dunedin that I kind of met up with some people who knew a bit and. I started to, you know, become really interested, and and what attracted me, of course, was that rock and roll. Those people took drugs. I thought that sounds really like something I could get into, um, and uh, so that was kind of my way in, really. And then after I'd been there for a couple of years and had had solidly developed a bit of an interest in post punk music, um, th- then. This this whole thing happened, um, uh, and I um, I became you know obsessed really with um, with what was going on, and you know got involved, and it all kind of went from there. I mean, it's a small town; it's about one hundred and twenty-five thousand people. Oh wow! Yeah, and yeah. The, I mean, that's and the university is about forty. Used to be about fifteen thousand. I don't know how many people now, but you know, so that gives you the flavour. <laughs> And uh, so what What did you go to university for? To study. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, do you, oh, I don't, yeah, I mean, this might be different. Like in the U.S., you major in, a, you know, you have to pick right yeah. after that usually, you know. No, I mean, I, I was doing a, a, a Bachelor of Arts, just a general arts degree. I, um, I majored in, I was doing a double, I was doing, at one point I was doing double honors in um, anthropos prehistoric anthropology and political philosophy. Um, and then the anthropologists, um, they, they are a bunch of fuckwits. And um, they, uh, <laughs> there, was a, there was an incident where uh, one of my lecturers didn't understand that I was in the honours stream. And, and without going into detail, basically, I got to the end of the year and he explained to other people in the class what would be in the honours exam because there was a special exam for honours. And I kind of put my hand up at this point because it was the last lecture of the year and said, um, you, you, what do you mean the <laughs> honours exam is about this book that all these people have – you never told me about it? And he said – Basically, at that point, it became apparent he didn't realise that I was part of the honours class and he had not taught me 
any of the material that was going to be examined. And at this point, I got pretty fucked off. And <laughs> that was the end of my anthropology career. Of course, they had basically, I had to... I had to pass the course because it would have been too embarrassing to fail me because it, that would have exposed the yeah. fact that they were incompetent. <laughs> so I wasn't so much worried about my marks as I was just fucked off that they'd been wasting my time. So I completed my honours degree in political philosophy and then in reasonably short order went on to do a master's um, during which time I did a bit of part-time teaching and... Um, and yeah, that, so that I'd spent about six years at the University of Otago. Then I had a, I went to London for a year in 1986. Then I came back um, and we started the Dead Sea, basically, yeah. when I got back. Were you, yeah, were you playing at all uh, in college before the Dead Sea? Like uh, a, little, a little bit, sort of 84, 85, um, but, you know, um, just just sort of mucking around really nothing particularly serious yeah yeah um so you start you you start the dead sea after you finish your masters but like when when we're exposed to you were talking about like um rock music kind of when you were younger but what like what kind of stuff were you exposed to was the was new zealand flooded with like u.s and uk bands like was there anything? It, um, probably more more English bands. Yeah. Um, sort of 70, 79, um, 80, 81. It was all the stuff that was on Rough Trade in the UK. You know, the Fall were huge. Um, and they toured in eighty two, uh, when right around when they did Hex Induction Hour. Um, yeah. You know, I was a big fan of Cabaret Voltaire. They were big faves of mine. Um, but American bands like Pear Ubu, um, The Cramps, uh, Gun Club, when they happened, that was about 83, they sort of popped up. Um, so, yeah, American music began to be more significant probably by about 83, 84. And then later on, you know, Sonic Youth and, um, you know, bands like The Pixies were huge, um, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, it was kind of the same thing here. Like, that, uh, you know, Sonic Youth and the Pixies, that underground music was, you'd hear it on college radio and that's it, you know. Yep. Um, yeah. Not until, you know, 90 and, you know, of course, Nirvana blowing up and stuff. That's when normal radios started playing more, somewhat more underground music. But, yep. I mean, it's still shit. I mean, right now, now, right now it's even worse. It's worse than it was um, because all the, our media companies got, you know, they conglomerate it. So most normal top 40 radio in, in the U.S. is just horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. I think we both agreed on that. <laughs> um, uh, when did you – so so you come back. How did you meet uh, Michael and Robbie? Did you know them um, or no? I, I, I knew Robbie slightly um, because he was he was the drummer in the Belanes, and I used to go <laughs> – and see the Valanes. Oh, okay. Um, and and you know we're talking about they would play at the Empire Tavern, which is which was a bar with a capacity of about thirty or forty people. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't hard to to meet people in the, those circumstances. Um, you know, it was, this was not a mass right, thing. Right. Um, 
And Michael, I met, uh, I kind of met because he, uh, my girlfriend and his girlfriend at the time were flatmates in 83, if I remember correctly. So I sort of met him then and we realised that we had interests in common in terms of the kind of music we were listening to. Um, and then in 84, I flattered with Michael uh, Robert Scott from The Clean and Alistair Galbraith. So the four of us had a house for a year. Um, and that's that's sort of when we, well, that, that was the, <laughs> yeah, I'm still playing with two of those people now. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, is that when a Handful of Dust started? Um, yeah, the first Handful of Dust performances were in 84 and it was mainly me, um, Alistair, playing violin a bit, um, but it was just a reasonably, you know, it was just a really small thing. I only probably did four or five shows or something. Um, and then it sort of went into abeyance, um, but, and we resuscitated it in um, 92. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, because we did you don't the Concord album. Is there any releases from the first? Uh, there was a cassette um, that I did in um, 1985, maybe. Late 84, beginning of 85, I think. Uh, and there's probably about 20 or 25 copies of that out there. Um, I, ha I have a copy. Uh, I know I'm not going to be reissuing it. No. Yeah, I think I was because I was looking and I'm like, oh, yeah, it looks like it started in early '90s, but yeah, that. So you have this. No, we're our, so we 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 did our 35th anniversary show a couple of years ago, but it's fair to say we weren't in continuous uh, activity for the 35 years. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, a handful of dust continuous activity is not actually our strong point. I mean, I've just been to Dunedin a week ago, and Alistair and I recorded a new album together and that's the first full album we've recorded in oh uh, i don't know 15 years or something yeah well yeah we, we haven't we haven't been hugely busy and uh i mean handful of dust is always you two at least right yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. The, the current definition is me and alistair and peter stapleton um was our occasional um, percussionist, but um, now that he's no longer with us, we're not looking to recruit another player. I think we'll just keep it the pair of us. Right, right. It's pretty well. Yeah. You have to apologize to Alistair if he ever, ever listens to my radio show. I've always referred to a handful of dust as your solo project. And I'm a while ago, I'm like, I'm an idiot. This is not a solo project. <laughs> well, it's a solo project with a guy who plays on pretty much everything. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a two-handed solo project. I, I, for some reason, way back in the day, I got it in my head that it was your solo project, and that's that's yeah. what. Well, I mean, there were there were own, like there, there were th there were things I did on my own, but um, you know, the odd single, but so yeah. it was it, it. Your your confusion is completely understandable. That's usually that's part for the course for me. So, yeah. Um, when did uh so did Expressway start around that same time or? Um, so going, <laughs> my eighties chronology is actually quite accurate. So, 
um, which is because I talk about it a lot. But um, the uh, so eighty January eighty seven. So that's thirty five years ago this month. The Dead Sea started. Um, so that's there's a milestone. Thirty five years of continuous effort, um, and then. Later in 87, I worked for Flying Nun for about six months as a kind of an intern slash publicist. Um, and at the, and so that at the end of 87, I stopped working for them because they were moving their operation to Auckland where I didn't want to go. And my response was to return to Dunedin and start Expressway. So beginning of 88, pretty much okay. Expressway um, began and ran for about five years. So through to about 93. And that was cassette only, right? Uh, we did five seven inches and one 12 inch record, the Playable Grind EP. Oh yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I think I have that actually. That's my one. Yeah, they're hard, you know, they're hard to find. Um, yeah, that, that one is is particularly hard to find um yeah you'll and you'll probably pay f you know 500 dollars for it unfortunately um i did try to get it reissued at various points but alistair there, there was just all sorts of reasons why he wasn't that enthusiastic so i think that, that that's kind of that ship has sailed mm -hmm. um some of it's on the um making losers happy uh compilation that yeah um, that he did yeah yeah i have a beat up copy of that <laughs> there you go <clears throat> um so uh so you run that for a handful of years um corpus now then, then there's a break right because corpus or medicum you started in mid 90s right well actually there was I stopped doing Expressway and I had absolutely no intention of starting another label. And then within a year, I, I did the first Corpus Medicum release. Oh. Um, and that was really because actually Michael Morley went and did a whole lot of research and worked out um, how affordable it was to, to press CDs. And essentially he persuaded me he, he was gonna do it but basically didn't um but he persuaded me that it was a really good thing to do and so i did it um i mean he ended up releasing a couple of cds um but yeah corpus Emeticum, I, I had you know i used to remember something like 20 odd releases i guess almost all of them on cd um and that was the heyday like 93 through to 2000 it was it was a license to print money you know yeah. i was making cds for two three bucks and selling them for depending on the exchange rate 11 or 12 dollars so i was making about 10 dollars a unit profit um and at times in that period i i didn't actually have a proper job so i mean 95 i did the um Thurston Moore, Tom Seagull, CD, Clang Farb and Melody. Basically, that supported my family for a year. I, I made about 40 grand off that. Damn. How, yeah. Many, yeah, how many copies of those did you, like, on, on well, average? That, that, you that make? On, on average, it was like kind of yeah. 600 copies was oh, okay. pretty normal. Um, yeah. 
but but like the Thurston one, I did four and a half thousand or something. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. At that time, when I was pressing CDs, you couldn't. Nobody in North America would do less than a thousand CDs, and I was just like, oh, I don't want a thousand CDs sitting around my basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that that was a bit of a problem, but there were. Yeah, I mean, and I went through various manufacturing options, but it it was possible to find places outside of North America that would do, you know, five or six hundred. Yeah, yeah. At one point, I hooked up with um, Luca Sabella. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Over in Australia, yeah. and he had some relationship with a pressing plant there. And yes, yeah. yeah so, so he he yeah. cut. I I worked with him in the latter stages as well. He cut a really sweet deal where. In return for guaranteeing them a certain you know, volume, right. um, he could do basically da- he could do pressings as low as five hundred, and and they would swallow it. Yeah, Be- and and it was because essentially everything went through him, so they weren't dealing with a whole lot of you know fuckwits who didn't know what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for for no money, they were dealing with him, and it was serious money. You know, genius guy. So, you know, such a great person, so clever. Your the what you studied uh, undergrads, so that I, I was always curious as to a lot of your artwork, artwork and naming had a lot to do with you know, or it seemed to reference Latin things or anthropologic things. Is is that uh, influence from your early studies, or was it just no, kind of no, like, no, no? <clears throat> I um. I became obsessed with um, alchemy and the history of kind of early modern science um, in about 90, when were that? That was kind of about 92. And for about four years, I kind of did what I jokingly referred to as as a second master's, where I basically, because I had access to the university libraries uh, in Dunedin because I was a graduate of the university and that gave you borrowing rights. So I was essentially on a course of study for about four years where I was just reading academic articles and books nonstop about that whole kind of interesting period where science and magic weren't fully separated. you know, uh, Isaac Newton famously, you know, 75% of his extant manuscripts are about alchemy, not about physics. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it was just, that was literally just an interest. No, my, I mean, my academic, uh, original academic uh, discipline of study was um, Marxist philosophy. So, um, which is <laughs> nothing. Nothing, nothing really to do with that, except, you know, history of ideas is the common thread. Um, so I'm a, I'm a sucker for obscure, uh, interesting information. I still read preposterously um, pointless books all the time. I've just finished reading a, a, essentially a one-volume encyclopedia of late antiquity, which we used to call the Dark Ages, but they now call late antiquity. Um, so, yeah, you quiz me on, I don't know, um, Byzantine, um, you know, uh, bureaucratic arrangements in Asia Minor, um, if you want. Um, <laughs> but it, anyway, I, I have my reasons. Um, but yeah, that's it's a bit of a weakness of mine. Um, so knowing stuff is is kind of my vice, really. Um, I'm a very enthusiastic um, participant in um, in quizzes of all sorts. So the you know the more obscure the information required, the better. Um, 
uh, one of my workmates and I are um, in a regular kind of a um, like a pub quiz team um, every month. Uh, it's a titanic struggle with a bunch of wankers who usually win it. We usually come second. Um, but we always accuse them of cheating because they are, their team is often seven or eight strong and we're generally five or six. So, um, yeah, anyway, um, yeah, I, was, I, was, I was brought in because my, my particular area of expertise is uh, history and geography and they didn't have, they, they weren't strong on history and geography. Um, in the first time I participated in the quiz, my, uh, my colleague Lee famously um, overruled me and insisted that the uh, most northerly capital in the world was um, uh, Stockholm. And uh, he, he admitted afterwards it was in part because he couldn't spell Reykjavik, which I insisted was the correct answer. Um, <laughs> and it was. So now if he gets on my wick, I just say Reykjavik and <laughs> he gets very grumpy. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, moving on. Um, yeah, well, I mean, what do you what do you do for a living right now? Do you work at university? You teach or? Uh, I, I I work at a, what's called a polytech, which is like a university but um, a low rent one. Um, so the New Zealand education system in the nineties, the early nineties, the government changed the rules and allowed degrees to be granted by polytechnics, which were vocational training like okay. community colleges effectively yeah. um, uh, and um, and so I work at the Christchurch Polytechnic and um, they have a, an art school yeah. and so you can get a degree in fine art or design or whatever and I was managing the design school now I'm running the postgrad programs we have a master's in creative practice um, so that's that's my major activity. Um, I also coordinate staff research. Staff are expected to participate in academic research and, and this has to be documented in various ways and that's kind of my job is to kind of handle all of that. And it's, it's great. I, was, I spent nine years managing the art school and the stress really got to me. Um, but, so I was very lucky that uh, I managed to persuade them to move me sideways into a, a more genteel academic post. Um, I'm trying to write a book because um, I did a doctorate um, sort of 2000, sort of sort of seven, eight through to 2016, 17, um, a doctorate in fine art um, because in Melbourne there's a university that has a, a sound art program in their art school. So I did a doctorate with them. Um, and I'm quite keen to turn my dissertation into a book, which I'm doing at the moment. Um, and that's, that's, so that's uh, uh, something else I'm working on. But I, when I was managing the art school, I didn't have the bandwidth to write a book and it was driving me fucking nuts because <laughs> I've got all this stuff in my head that I really want to kind of just put it to bed, you know, put it in a book. Then I don't have to think about it. If people yeah. want to find out about it, they can read the book. But at the moment, it's it's still you know going around and around and around, and I, I will want it to stop so I can think about something else. Yeah. <laughs> Who would uh, would like the university press or something published that, or you're still? You uh, I, well, there there are a number of options, but I, mm -hmm. I have an, uh, a friend who's a commissioning editor for Bloomsbury, so um, I'm hoping I can kind of leverage off that 
yeah. um, I, publishing in New Zealand is not an option. This is a tiny country uh, and not a particular, not a, not a one where academic uh, learning is particularly esteemed, you know, cricket and rugby, they are esteemed, um, you know, alternative music and art theory, not so much. So I think in terms of reaching an audience, I'd need to publish it uh, in a met- what I would call a metropolitan country, not yeah. a fringe, peripheral, <laughs> shitty country. <laughs> You did the, uh, so the left-handed blows, is that your previous yep. book? Yeah. Um, yeah, when, when did you write that? I, I was oblivious to this. I re-watched the documentary that, Olive's your daughter, right? Yes. Yeah, so I watched the 20 Minutes twenty minutes with Mr. Noisy documentary again today. I've watched that a yep. couple times, and oh, yesterday, in fact. And I was watching, I was like reorganizing records and listening to it. And I, I was like, oh, I never looked up that book, and I never looked up the No More Driver Call Me release, which, of course, yep. is nowhere to be found anywhere. It's not even listed anywhere. Doesn't exist. Uh, <laughs> doesn't that exist. Was part of, that was part of my doctorate, basically, okay. that, that, that project. It was deliberately done to create a, kind of a, um, you know, a high-value um, commercial products that couldn't be bought. You actually made them, though, right? There were. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. There are there are about eighty copies of the yeah. thing out there, and you only gave them away. Yeah, um, and the only stipulation was if I give you one, you're not allowed to sell it. Yeah, you can only you can only gift it. <clears throat> uh, if you don't want it, give it to someone who you think should have it. Yeah, Shil- you know Shellac, the U.S. band, Steve Albini's band. Um, yeah. yeah, he put out a they put out a record like that once. And they were all numbered. Uh, oh, and the person's name, the cover was everyone's name who was getting it. And right. the copy you got, your name was highlighted. So nice. they would totally track. It's like cryptocurrency. They'd totally be able to track yeah. how, who, who sold that record. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you're, you're succeeding because it's not listed on Discogs. And I didn't, nope. see, it. I didn't see it listed anywhere. Nope. Um, but, so so left- um, Left-Handed Blows was published in about, 2009 10 and it it's compiled stuff i'd written over the previous kind of uh, 15 18 years um sort of shorter essays there's about 22 things in that book um i can send you a pdf if you're interested um that'd be great yeah that's that's a i'm happy to do that um and that was published by an art book publisher in Auckland, New Zealand, because I got some funding from our um, arts council to do it. Um, so yeah, that one was published here. But you know, and it was seven hundred pressing of seven hundred, um, pu- you know, publication run, and it sold out within six months. And now it's completely unobtainable, yeah. <laughs> which is why I give away the PDF. But um, yeah, I'm quite keen to publish a book that might stay in print for a little bit longer. Why? Why wouldn't they just reprint it if it's because they didn't have any money? Um, because the, 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 this is an art book publishing uh, entity that existed only if if because I got a grant, oh, the I book see. happened. <clears throat> so they it. didn't put any money in. Uh, uh, I I, I got the money, wrote the book, they designed the book and helped with the editing, and then they sold the book. And then it just doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. 
Yeah, so it's like an it's like independent label stuff, yeah, yeah, except yeah. they sold them all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, keeping on books, so Erwan Calling, am I pronouncing that correctly? I think so. Yeah, Erwan. Um, Erwan. So that was something that, like, I just came a, came across. I think about a year ago. Um, some of the New Haven guys, like Stephen Christensen, I think his girlfriend got him his book, and I'm like, what is that book? And I look it up. And I'm like, How did I not know about this? Mm-hmm. Um, I reached out and I think it was Kraus. Yep. It was real name. Is that his real name? Yep. Okay. Pat. Pat, Pat Kraus. Oh, Pat Kraus. Okay. So he like, he direct messaged me. He's like, Oh, I can buy a copy. The local art audio foundation. Yeah. yeah. Audio foundation has it. So I'm like, well, I'll reach out to him. So I reached out to them and I ended up buying like five copies. Good. Uh, they were oblivious on how to sell wholesale. Like they, they had no idea what wholesale pricing was. So they gave me no yep. wholesale price. Right. Um, barely packed it. Uh, I got them, sold them lo- you know, locally and online. And then they sold like that. And I bought five more and they packed them the same way. Just loose. <laughs> I'm sorry. What can I say? <laughs> they came here. They were fine because they were shrink wrapped. So they worked that well, but yeah, you edited that book, right? Essentially, yes, I did. Yeah, I was I was recruited. Um, so the the woman who was running the Audio Foundation back in like this is two thousand nine ten. Um, Zoe, she had the idea of doing this book, and and so her role was she got funding again from the Arts Council to make the book. She recruited Richard Francis, who's a you know sound artist, a friend of mine, to design it because he's a graphic designer. And he said, we're going to need someone who can really, you know, drive the project. So they brought me in. So I I essentially decided, I, I mean, it was, a, the three of us worked on it together, but my idea was that we would, that it would be that, the kind of book that it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and we collectively decided who we would approach to contribute and the kinds of contributions we would try and get. Um, and yeah, I essentially had a fair bit to do with putting it together and wrote that introduction to try and explain, you know, what the book was. Mm-hmm. I, I'm glad you got that. I mean, I think it's a pretty good record of 10 years of work. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I get, um, I get, I get bored reading about music a lot of times, which is stupid because you, I'm really into music, but, um, that thing kept me glued. I was glued to that book, um, and read the whole thing. And it was really only a few essays where I was kind of like, not totally interested, but it was still good. And then mm-hmm. other books that were just kind of blowing me away. And it was, yeah, it was a great, I think, snapshot of, of, you know, whatever the scene or the time or, yeah sound or something yeah it was really yeah. well done yeah um how uh so yeah recently i watched that uh on an unknown beach movie oh where yeah. did you find it uh it's on vimeo oh really um so yeah somehow somebody must have posted about it i'm trying to think of who maybe roy montgomery i'm not sure Mm-hmm. somebody posted about it and I was like, Oh, what's that all about? And I went on Vimeo and Vimeo, and you can only rent it. You can't buy it. Yeah. <clears throat> and a Vimeo rental is like good for, I don't know, a day or something like that. Um, yeah, but it was great. So how, yeah, how did that come about? Cause it, 
they the, literally the directors had an idea they asked me if I'd do it it was entirely their thing they um they asked me if I you know they they said we're going to be in Christchurch for a week we want to film you I said well I need to do this project um for a festival so I and I said look you can film me making this work um and so that's basically what they did. The some of the location stuff where I was walking around the city is a little bit fake, but most of it actually is me actually recording stuff that that went into that project. And a version of it was um, eventually uh, Charles Nielsen put out uh, an LP on L'Esprit de l'Escalier. Um, which is me on one side, him on the other. And so my side is the stuff that I did in, for that movie. Gotcha. But they made me re read shit from left-handed blows and stuff. And I'm like, they chose the texts. It wasn't really up to me. I just, I, I was just the talent. They just, mm -hmm. you know, I just did what they wanted. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, it's, it's, it turned out pretty well. I think it's a, it's, it's weird, <laughs> but it's interesting. Yeah. No, I, and there's I, a there's a there's a really good bit at the end where they're using uh, Alistair Galbraith's fire organ. Like you don't see the fire organ, but the recording is him playing this incredible instrument that he built. Um, while the actor guy um, who's doing the hypnotic therapy is lighting fires, sort of on the beach or something. It's late in the movie. It's a it sounds like whale calls. It's a beautiful piece of sound yeah that that scene was great wait that guy's an actor or that yeah yeah he's an actor oh okay i thought that was just and he guy going no he therapy. i mean he, he did he did undergo the therapy mm -hmm. but but he but he is also an actor okay is he an actor who just happened to go through therapy or, <laughs> or, I, or was he i never that i movie? never i never worked it out okay i, I do, literally don't I do remember know. i think that they said he was an actor and I remember is, thinking yeah. that, like, all right, is he acting or is this, or that just happens to be his yeah. profession. But, I, I, I literally don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 I like documentaries a lot, and I thought that was a really fascinating, kind of weird, chaotic, you know, three stories. They, they called it a speculative documentary, which I think is pretty fair. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so the project you were working on that they just happened to film, that's when you're in the room setting up your equipment, that's yeah. that part. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, what the fire organ? Can you explain the fire? It, the, is fi the fire organ fire? is it's a it's a it's a keyboard that controls two octaves of notes, and each note is a glass tube between about a foot and two yards long. Yeah. Um, and in each tube, there's a a gauze, a metal gauze. Um, and at the bottom of the tube is a Bunsen burner, a gas-powered burner. And when you hit a note, the, it, the, it mechanically moves the Bunsen burner into the tube, heats the gauze, and then a physical effect called the Reiki effect causes the superheated gases in the tube to generate a note. So the Reiki effect is, is not widely understood and the Alistair got funding from uh, there's a fund that was funding 
artists to collaborate with scientists. So his argument was, I can build a flame organ that will exploit the Reiki effect to make sound, and I will collaborate with a physicist who will assist me in understanding how to do this. Mm -hmm. The problem was he found that in New Zealand, there was no one who understood the Reiki effect better than he did. Like none of New Zealand's physicists were remotely interested in the behavior of superheated gases um, in tubes. Um, and the only guy he found there was a Russian at Caltech who was absolutely obsessed with Alistair's research. Cause of course, physicists had made individual tubes, superheated the gases and observed the, what happens. Mm. They'd never thought to make a whole organ, a whole like two octaves yeah, yeah, of yeah. tubes and, and find out what happened at the different sizes. Mm. How does that affect the movement of the gases and the sound that it produces? So um, the problem was that the funding required that the physicist be in New Zealand and because the only guy he could find who was actually any help was at Caltech, he lost the funding in the end. He did manage to build the flame orb, and it, it exists. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an, it's an amazing-looking thing. And there is, I think there's some video somewhere online of him playing it. Um, but the problem is it, it's, it's, uh, it's an organ of glass tubes. It's not very easy to transport. <laughs> so he won't be touring it anytime soon. Did he uh, did he write about that in the book? Maybe in Air One Calling, probably. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm thinking about it, I do remember reading about this. Yeah. So you you just recorded some handful of dust, and you were recording some Dead Sea work. Uh, is this stuff that's on the on the plans for the future future release? Um. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Um. So yeah, I'm. Uh, the 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 Dead Sea stuff. We're proposing another album on Bada Bing, and um, we've started doing these um, self-released seven-inch EPs because seven inches we've realised are potentially postable. Like you can almost afford to post seven-inch records. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. Um, and we can get them done in Melbourne for yeah, more or less affordable prices. I mean, you have to sell them for more money than I'm happy with, but that's mm -hmm. what they cost, yeah, yeah. basically. So we're looking at doing a triple seven-inch. So it'll oh. effectively be an, an album in six tracks Wait, but three, on three seven, records. <laughs> is it going to be postable at that point, though? Like, Yeah, I think so, because cause the the way that the post works, it's actually the, it's the, it's the dimensions of the package are almost more important than the weight. Oh. So if you're if you're up to a certain size, the weight is immaterial. It's a fixed price. So three singles can pretty much be mailed for the same price as one. Oh, I see. That explains. I used to get stuff from Peter King, and I remember there was always these very like weight limits. Yeah. You, like you just pack stuff into some size box or something like that. Yes, and that would limit. be the that would be the the most cost effective kind of sweet spot yeah oh that's how it works yeah so you yeah so you guys are getting them pressed melbourne yeah you yeah. press the plan over there and then yeah, yeah getting them from there isn't too horrible yeah it's yeah because i mean it's it's not that far it's yeah. 1200 kilometers or something yeah, yeah um 
yeah, it's not like pressing something in the northern hemisphere, bringing it down here, and then trying to sell it again. It's like, yeah, yeah. that doesn't work. Yeah. So um, those seven inches, that, that's something that you guys as a band are doing in self-releasing, right? And then yep. you're also recording something that potentially you'd like try to get Bada Bing to put out. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to be a problem. I, I think that, you know, we can, yeah. we're, we're still in a situation where if we offer Ben a record, he'll do it. Yeah, yeah. Because our records always sell. And, sell. Yeah, yeah. And they get reviewed and, you know, nobody gets rich off it. But, um, you know, it's his point is that it's really hard to get any kind of media attention for anything. Um, and um, our stuff always gets media attention without anyone having to do anything, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it just does. So, yeah, I think we're good. That's what 35 years get you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, do you have any uh, solo work that you have coming out? You've kind of recently um, yes, 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 I do. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a record that I've made for Feeding Tube, which is um, called Circuits of Omission. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a 12-inch EP at 45 um, with about, I think it's got 14 tracks. They're all really short. Um, and I got I, uh, Clinton Williams, um, who records under the name of Omit, um, is a maker of electronic instruments. He made me a thing that he calls the Dirtbox Modulator. And when I got the Dirtbox Modulator, uh, I had to work out how to use it. So the only, I mean, he, he provides what you might call user manuals, but they're pretty, um, they're, they're pretty surrealistic documents. They're kind of hard to understand. So the only way to really work out what this thing could do was to do it. So I started working with it and I quickly realized that, that for me, the way it worked best was if I just turned it on and then let it go for a couple of minutes and then just stopped and then reset everything. And just, so I did basically in a last March, I did, oh, 21, 22, of these things that I called sonatas, which are like two minute instrumental pieces using this device. Um, and then I basically picked the best 14 or so and pitched it to Feeding Tube and they agreed to do it. And I wanted to do it on a 12 inch because it's mono and it's one electronic instrument and I wanted it to be as loud and big as it possibly could be because I've become quite obsessed in my old age with with the sound of records. I've been doing this project investigating um, mono 45s from the 1950s and 60s and really delving into how they were mastered and why they sound the way they do. And as part of that, I wanted to, to make a, I wanted to make effectively like a, a disco 12 inch, you know, because there's a reason why DJs, you know, use 12 inches. Um, and so I thought, this is such a wicked sounding device that if I can get the maximum volume and clarity and presence out of the vinyl, it's worth it. So that's why. And, and I figured, you know, it's, it's by the time you've listened to it, you think you've heard an album, 
put it that way, after you've heard 14 of these things, you, you, you kind of want it to stop. <laughs> <laughs> so that's part of, uh, so just the other day, or maybe yesterday, you posted a digital release. Yes. So that's, that's, a, that's that, those, those pieces are more recent. Uh, it's become a, it's a, just a thing I've been doing. So yeah. it's the same approach. With that device. And all, the, all the recordings are done using a mobile phone. So they're, 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 they're mono digital recordings, just literally on an, on an Android phone, um, and which I put on top of the amplifier. Because I figure all it's one sound. Everything's coming out of one speaker. Yeah. What's the point of a stereo recording of one speaker? Sure. I think you'd understand that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so effectively what I do is I, I master them in stereo, but both channels are identical because I've, I've had trouble in the past with cutting engineers freaking out. If you send a mono master, they, uh, think, yeah. they think something's wrong. Um, they'll still, I had this really hilarious uh, exchange with Charles Nielsen once where when he was working for Revolver and I'd sent, I can't even remember which record it was, but he got this worried email from the cutting engineer. Um, it sounds like it's in mono. And... <laughs> Kaz was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a problem? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, he sent me the gonna, emails. It was hilarious. <laughs> when I listen when I listen to those tracks that you had on Bandcamp, I was gonna ask you what instrument you were using. So that's the that's the thing. It's a dirt use. box. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. effectively it's an it's an analog synthesizer. Um the dirt box has like a, it's got a low frequency oscillator. It's got a ring modulator. It's got a, um, uh, an Atari punk console, an APC. Um, I had to, I had to actually Google a whole lot of these things to work out what the fuck, cause I'm, I'm reading Clinton's user manual going, what the fuck is he talking about? What the fuck is that? What's an Atari punk console? What? what? So I, I, I learned a bit um, as trying to work out how to use it. Basically, and you can kind of switch these things in and out. Um, it will take an input, um, and he's he's made me previously a, a bank of uh, like three oscillators, which on some of the stuff I've done, I ran those three oscillators into the dirt box, and then there's usually outboard effects, like I tend to use a bit of spring reverb or wah or... I've got a, a really interesting 70s color sound pedal called a Superphase, which is like a uni vibe, like Jimi Hendrix used to use. So it's a low-frequency oscillator with a sweepable pedal, like a wah. Um, so I, I run, I use all that shit, because basically those are, in, you know, envelope um, tools. And, um, yeah, a few other bits and pieces. But, yeah, most of what I do is... is um, fuzz, wah, and um, and sort of tremolo, effectively tremolo, vibrato. Uh, not much else. Mm -hmm. But I really like using like multiple fuzzes and multiple mm -hmm. wahs because um, I find that really adds uh, a whole element of chaos to the process and enables you to really pick particularly unpleasant frequencies and really work them. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of multiple fuzzes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're all different. Why yeah. only have one? Yeah. 
Yeah, and then you know, what one does to the next one if you're running them in line, just, just a mess. Yeah. Uh, the Dirtbox device, is that is there anything that's like, a, quote, random in there? Like, well, yeah, I think so, but it's it's built into the circuitry. He Clinton assured me that I wouldn't manage to get the same exactly the same output twice, right? Because there are too many variables. Because this yeah. thing is it, got like it's got a barrage of about twelve sweepable knobs, pots, and uh, and you can cut them in and out quite randomly and. Yeah, you. It will do, it, and it seems to sometimes it will see, seem to be changing over time. I don't fully understand how, um, but I, I love devices that I can't really predict exactly what they're going to do. So yeah, there's an element of chaos. Yeah, yeah. I have a bunch of friends. Uh, my buddy Nuge, who's in bands with me and stuff, uh, he's a big modular synth guy. Just huge racks that he brings, you know, to our practice and stuff like that. And then we have another friend who's in university right now in a master's program creating instruments. Um, uh-huh. So he's out at um, University of Buffalo, which is where like Tony Conrad um, yep. taught and stuff. <clears throat> so he's, yeah, he's kind of finishing his master's doing that kind of stuff. I'm a, I'm a techie. I've been writing software forever and I don't get any of that shit. Like, <laughs> and I, and I always think about getting into it. I'm like, nah, I just like turning my guitar on and, you know, playing through a crappy loud amp or something. Yeah, well, I've been very lucky that I've had people who've been willing to make me things. I mean, particularly Clinton has made me a number of devices over the years. Um, and yeah, I've, I've it's been it's been a great joy to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I certainly couldn't do it myself. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about, or? Oh no, I think that's a pretty comprehensive um, kind of assessment of where things are at. Um, so um, I'm hoping, you know, look, we're not planning anything because at the moment planning is like the last thing you can do. But at some point, I'd like to think we could plan something um, and get out and about. But in the meantime, I mean, we've been keeping busy. You know, they've we've done a, you know, we've done a couple, a bunch of records during COVID. You know, we can those things can travel. So that's what we've been doing. Really. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, the last uh, last time you were in the US was. 16, right? 2016? Uh, I think. Yeah, that sounds about... Yeah, when Robbie... Uh, uh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah I, I, I might have said... Yeah, I think I might have talked to you for a brief moment. Uh, it was at the Philly show. Uh, at Johnny Brenda's. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the, the New York show was probably the best show of that tour, I think. Um, that That one was really good. But I mean, the problem there was, you know, no drummer. Um, and again, that's that's down to your insane legal system, um, because you know, Robbie was persuaded in 1986 to tell the truth about a teenage pot conviction. He was busted in 1983 in a small town in rural New Zealand for one and a half joints, and because he declared that on a form to the U.S. State Department in 1986 when he was initially applying for a, you know, a visa because the Belaines were thinking about going to the States, I think. Mm-hmm. And it was Roger Shepard, who was running Flying Nun Records, told Robbie that honesty was the best policy. That is the stupidest piece of fucking advice any human being has ever given another one. But he, 
But he came here before that, though, right? Like, yeah, but the, the, okay, so yes, he did. And that was on a, he could get a, um, he could get a tourist visa, um, but, so they changed the visa requirements. So okay. when they brought in what they call the ESTA, so the ESTA is an online application that you have to do to get a visa. And the yeah. problem is that um, in the old days, you could go to the US consulate in Auckland, which is, you know, it's a, it's, it's a fucking $600 plane ride away, but you could go there and, and you would either get a visa or you wouldn't. Mm. But the problem is with the online thing, with the ESTA, it gets to the point where, have you ever been denied a visa for entry to the United States? He has to say yes. Yeah. And at that point, the ESTA process yeah. stops. <clears throat> he cannot get an ESTA. And so what he did was he went for that 2016 tour. He then went to the consulate in Auckland, okay, and he applied for a visa. And this was three months before the tour. He got the visa six months after the tour. It took nine months to get the visa. And it was valid for two years or three years or four, four years, I think. Mm. But the problem is that, you know, basically COVID, yeah. so it's just expired. <laughs> he now is once again in a position where he cannot go to the United States. I mean, he could and I guess he could speculate. You know. He could he could spend hundreds of dollars and apply for a visa now in the hope that by the time he needed to use it, yeah, yeah, yeah. have it. But how fucked is that? <laughs> but yeah, what's ridiculous too? It all stems from a marijuana charge, which here now, it's, depending on what state you are, it's yeah. legal to possess. Yes, you know, and and it, and it happened. 45 years ago. Yeah, right. You would think there's a statute of limitations with that, right? There isn't. There isn't. With drugs, there isn't. Oh, God. Yeah. I'm sorry, America, but how fucked is that? Oh, yeah. That's the least of our worries. Jesus Christ. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and we mustn't, we mustn't get started on the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. Because you are not wrong. <laughs> uh so, uh, but get back, getting back to your solo, your solo work. So you have the LP coming out of yeah. Phoenix Tube. Uh, yeah, it's on their coming. I think it's on their coming, coming soon list. Um, yeah, could any, be, could be March. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any other uh, things in the works or the book? I, I, I'm sorry. Whenever people ask me this question, I always blank, and then about an hour later, I go, Oh yeah, there was. A, I forgot about that one. Um, I can't think of any others right now. Um, to be honest, I think that's it. Um, but I'll probably, as soon as this conversation ends, I'll probably remember another one that I haven't told you about. Um, I recently did, oh, here's the thing. I recently did an LP that I think Feeding Tube had a hand in uh, as part of a group we called The Escalation. Um Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, and that the recording of that was in the uh, on an unknown beach movie. Oh, okay. So there's a short segment where you see me and somebody else playing. That's Peter Wright, and um, that that the recording we made at that point is the just is the Escalation album, 
which yeah, came yeah. out oh, before Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really good. But, That's the. It's like a blue with a gray. Yeah, theme. the blue one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, the thing is that one was mastered and sent away for manufacturing well after the synthesizer record that Feeding Tube had got out yet. But for whatever reason, it just kind of got in a queue and got made really quickly. Yeah, the I don't know. I did. We did a handful of dust reissue. The uh, Eightness of Adam Cadmon with a Finnish label, um, and they were we freaked them out yeah. with the mastering because I actually managed to master it to make it sound far worse than it had originally sounded. Like Achaeus, that, that yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah. They, they were really good about. It. The funny thing was. They didn't say anything, but when they got it, they were obviously horrified by by the fact that it just sounded so fucking lo-fi and brutal. Um, and yet bits of it that had come out previously sound kind of normal. And my, there were two reasons. One was I thought it sounded dull. The, it wasn't really strong enough the way it was. It needed some more grit. But the other thing was there was some problem with the way that my cassette my best cassette player was performing with that cassette and I just couldn't get a good sound out of it. So yeah. I decided to just go with it because I decided I liked it. And then they sent it to Lasse Mahaug in Norway in the hope that he could save it. And and what, what made me feel quite good about the whole process was actually what he did to it was the thing that I had tried yeah. and not done. Like there was, there was a way to kind of, and what happened in the end was half the tracks sounded better the way he did them and half of them sounded better the way I did them. So I just compiled a master that used the best of both versions because <laughs> um, I wanted everybody to be happy. But the record still sounds like hell and I'm, re and I'm really happy with it. Um, the new record is not as extreme as that, but but the the actual what we did the 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 frequency mangling is is much much more brutal than anything on that record. Um, uh, Chris Hazelwood, who was kind of upstairs in the same building when when we were doing it, came downstairs and said it sounded like um, we were taxiing you know long range jets um, <laughs> to and fro in the room. Um, <clears throat> So I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with the, with the way that turned out. So hopefully, uh, we'll be able to move forward. But yeah, yeah, awesome. Right. Okay. All right. All right cool, man. Yeah. Cheers. Really good yeah. to talk to you, Joe. Talk soon. Yeah. Take care. Yeah. All Bye. the best. So yeah, I want to uh, thank Bruce again for that great interview. I had a ball talking to him. Hope you enjoyed it. You're listening to the Dead Sea in the background here. A track called Driver UFO from Harsh 70s Reality. Uh, before the interview uh, from the top of the show, you heard a handful of dust doing a track called The Kabbalah of the Horse Pegasus. And that's from the uh, Le Jazz Non compilation CD on Corpus Hermeticum. After that, the, uh, the Dead Sea with Power, and that's the uh, version from Clima S. Mort. Uh, LP on Silt Breeze. Then there was a Bruce Russell solo track called Poison Plus Lies Equals Money Plus Death. That's a 7-inch on Crank Automotive. And the last track I played in that first set was A Handful of Dust, The Seventhness. And that's from a 7-inch lathe cut on Corpus Hermeticum. Originally, that's originally from um, 
a cassette called The Eighthness of Adam Kodman. Starts with a Q. So I'm going to play uh, some more of this uh, Driver UFO. Then I'm going to get into some more tracks from A Handful of Dust and Bruce Russell, etc. I'll do a, I'll do a full wrap-up at the end. Uh, you can also get the uh, full playlist and links in the show notes. And also up on the website, uh, myteethintention.com. So uh, let's get back to the music, all right?
hearing here in the background is a handful of dust a track called a brief apology it's actually got a longer title a brief apology and then in parentheses washing away and cleansing the stain of suspicion and infamy applied to the fraternity of the rosy crown with as it were a flood of truth so this uh this features alistair galbraith on violin and concord conquest and then Bruce Ross on guitar and Concord Contessa. It was recorded back in 92. Um, from what I can tell, this is the first full length from A Handful of Dust. So yeah, it came out in 93 on Twisted Village. And uh, that was, of course, distributed by Force Exposure. Oh, and he references, it says, A Corpus Hermeticum Project. So uh, this is, it seems like, Corpus Hermeticum number one as well, because it kind of has Hermes, Hermes 001. Before that, you heard the Dead Sea with a version of Three Years. There's various versions of that song. That's the one from the DR-503. Uh, I played that from the double LP reissue that Bada Bang did. So it's DR-503 and Sunstabbed EP. Before that, Noel Meek and Bruce Russell with a track called Nazi Crusaders Fuck Off. And that's from the Say No to Hate LP on Ikeasis. Uh, that's the record that Bruce kind of talks about uh, mastering and just <laughs> totally, totally fl- uh, you know, blasting it uh, super loud for them. Uh, that was like a cassette or phone recording I think he did. Uh, before that, Delaney Davidson and Bruce Russell, a uh, track called Crown Electric King. That's from the One Hand Loose uh, for Charlie Feathers LP on Elam, Elam Press. Uh, I remember that came out, you know, I don't know, a handful of years ago at least. And uh, I was really taken by it because um, Bruce's playing is usually way more uh, free noise than that thing was, you know, uh, I don't know what how to describe put together you know i don't know um standard ish it was still you know it's still free um but yeah that was a that was a great thing that came out uh before that handful of dust with in the house of voluntary poverty and that's from the seven inch on corpus hermeticum and silt breeze and we started the set off after the interview with driver ufo from the dead sea and that's from the harsh 70s reality double lp on silt breeze Thanks again for sticking around. Uh, thanks again to Bruce for doing the interview, giving me his time, uh, just being an all-around great guy and, and putting out just amazing music for the last, well, I don't know, 30 years or something. Uh, has turned me on just to a slew of things uh, through the work of his labels, um, Expressway and Corpus Hermeticum, and... Uh, the book. Uh, so we talk a little bit about in the interview the Erwan Calling book that he helped edit. That thing is great. Uh, if you could track down a copy, I don't have any more left. I might get more uh, in stock, but 
uh, it's a really, really good book that describes, you know, a scene. I don't know if that's the right term um, because it really is. It's a, a gamut of things, but it's a really interesting book written by, you know, a whole slew of people kind of describing what they were going going through and doing and still doing. Um, so, yeah, I highly encourage that. I'll have links in the show notes uh, to various things, including the uh, 27 Minutes with Mr. Noisy documentary that Bruce's daughter did with him. Uh, it's awesome. It's up on YouTube. I'll, I'll include a link to that um, and some other links in there uh, for things we talked about and sites, uh, you know, websites that you can track down information from Bruce, uh, including his band camp and stuff like that because he's been reissuing a lot of digital-only releases of his uh, solo work uh, and upcoming uh, kind of teasers to upcoming work. I have a few interviews uh, in the uh, in the bank right now. I'm uh, doing some editing. Uh, those are going to include an interview with David Grubbs, um, most notably of Gaster del Sol, but he was in you know Squirrel Bait and Bastro and tons of solo work. And I also just did an interview with Darren Gray. <clears throat> uh, you may know him from Dazzling Killman and Breeze Glace. Breeze Gloss, I think they pronounce it. Uh, Yona Kit, You Fantastic. A lot of solo and collaborative releases. Uh, he's done work with uh, Jeff Tweedy and stuff like that. So those interviews, uh, keep an eye out for those. Uh, um, I'm not going to promise anything. They'll come out at some point. <laughs> I'm going to do uh, a few music-only uh, shows as well. Uh, one, I think, featuring uh, a slew of seven inches that I've been getting over the last couple months um, and things like that. So thanks again for tuning in. Uh, rate and review us. Uh, tell your friends about it. Uh, MyTeethNeedAttention.com is the easiest way to find the information that you need. And uh, we'll see you next time around. All right. Th- take care. Bye. <laughs>